Welcome to the Watershed Investigations, tales from the front line of the water crisis. I'm Liana Hosea and I'm here with Rachel Salvage. Now, did you know that plastic produces an estimated 400 million tonnes of waste every year, but less than 10% of that is recycled, according to the United Nations Environment Programme, while at least 14 million tonnes ends up in the ocean every year, according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. But despite everyone knowing how damaging plastic is and the need to phase out oil production because of climate change, you'd have thought plastic production would be decreasing. It's not. It really isn't. Experts predict that plastic production is going to increase by 40% in the next decade. And if we don't do anything about this plastic soup, oceans are going to carry more plastic than fish by weight by 2050. The UN warns that marine life could be irreparably destroyed. Now, this is what makes the most recent round of the UN negotiations to hammer out a framework for the world's first treaty to control plastic pollution so pressing. Negotiators spent last week meeting in the Kenyan capital at talks known as the INC3. They have until the end of next year to strike a deal for the control of these plastics. But critics have said that there was little progress made and Greenpeace even described it as chaos. So there are now 500 proposals from governments on the table when the plan was to draw up a single draft. And in that, it has definitely failed. To discuss what went on, we're joined by two great guests who were there in Nairobi and can give us the inside track. Hamid Tiamu heads the Community Action Against Plastic Waste, a youth-led organisation working across 15 countries, mainly in Africa, but across developing nations. They focus on advocacy and policy with low-income countries, empowering them to engage in processes such as this. Hamid is from Lagos, Nigeria, but he's joining us from Nairobi, where the talks took place. Hamid, paint that picture for us. You know, how does plastic impact the lives of some of the people you're working with? For example, you know, residents in Lagos, where you're from, you know, Lagos is a major city, a huge economic hub in Nigeria. And in terms of population, it's it's one of the biggest countries in Africa, isn't it? And plastic waste waste is a huge problem there. What what is it like? Around nine thousand kilogram to thirteen thousand kilogram of solid waste is generated every single day in Lagos. Around 25 million people is uh, documented to live in Lagos alone. So the challenge of plastic pollution in, in Nigeria, for instance, in a place like Lagos, is making our people poorer. There are no particular regulation of how plastic is produced, managed, or used. So basically, ordinary people who does not have any information about the content or how plastic actually the health or the risk that comes with use, their usage. Their health has been, you know, threatened, harmed. And, of course, this is basically making people to spend money they do not have on their health, which is making them poorer. Is that because there's a lot of burning of plastic waste, or is it, you know, there's a lot of waste pickers? Is it mainly the poorer members of society who are, whose health is being impacted by plastic pollution? It is not only the poorest, but the impact is more on the poorest. But it's for actually all of the population are exposed to this risk. Across the whole life cycle of plastic, they emit so many hazardous chemicals, endocrine disruptor, carcinogenic, you know, name them. A lot of research has shown the possibility of linkage of chemicals that are used in their production into the water, into the food material that they contain. So these are exposing everyone but it is more 
in low-income communities and poor communities because there's a lot of open burning that, for instance, that happened. Let me give you an instance. On the island of Lagos, where, you know, the most the middle class live, they have some sort of effective collection, like they have waste bins. But in poor communities, they, they, are, they cannot. They don't basically have how to collect. And even when they do, the Lagos Waste Management Authority, for instance, charges a fee for collecting waste from their... Because many of them cannot even afford to pay for this. So what they end up doing is collect it, hide it, and burn it in the middle of the night, in the early in the morning. And, of course, this is releasing a lot of this toxic, you know, into the air. And, of course, which is harming their heads. And, of course, because they don't know. So, you know, this goes on and on and on. And people are exposed to many of these toxic chemicals. From the burning, not so much from the production. Is there a lot of plastic production in Lagos or in Nigeria? No, not, not, not really. Because, for instance, yes, Nigeria is an oil-based economy. But most of the time, what happens is uh, the crude are exported to be refined elsewhere. Plastic production does not even benefit our country, for instance. And that's why you see that what you don't see in many developing countries, for instance, the waste pickers, which is a huge community of millions of people who are you know pick plastic and selling them for their livelihood many of them have to walk several kilometers to make less than a dollar a day which is definitely not a condition that anybody wants to work or anybody should work at all most of the plastic isn't being produced in Nigeria. Is most of the rubbish domestic or is there a lot of exporting from richer nations like in Europe? I know that you get thousands of tons of e-waste shipped to Nigeria from Europe, don't you? So do richer nations send their plastic waste to Nigeria to deal with? Yeah, okay. So this is something that we call waste colonialism which is, of course, not acceptable. Many developing countries export their waste that they do not, they cannot deal with, even with the technology, with advanced, you know, recycling technology that they have. They cannot able to deal with them. Then they export them to a developing country like Nigeria, for instance, which has absolutely know how to deal with some of this waste. In e-waste, in textile waste, in construction waste, and, you know, all of, many of them, like PVC, very harmful plastic, um, come to our country and, of course, continue to endanger people's health without them knowing. How much of this is legal and how much is illegal? Okay, I, I don't know, to be honest, which of them should be legal because, for instance, uh, many of the countries that export this waste to Nigeria under the Basel Convention, many of them are not parties. It's not even legal for them to export some of these hazardous waste to Nigeria, for instance. But, you know, this goes on because a lot of time, like I had mentioned earlier, there are weak legislation to address some of this issue. You go so far as to call this plastic colonialism or waste colonialism. Is, is this widely felt? Yes, Yes, it's not only actually in, in Nigeria, for instance, or in Africa. Statistics also show that it's even more in Asia-Pacific, for instance, in the Philippines and many of them. This is a huge problem. Yeah, thank you, Hamid. Uh, can we move on to the um, the Plastics Treaty that you mentioned uh, uh, a moment ago? So the treaty that's being discussed is supposed to be like a plastics equivalent to the Paris Climate Agreement and is supposed to address the full life cycle of plastics, including the upstream production as well as waste they've been talking about. But how do you personally feel like the negotiations have gone? So far, 
it's generally actually been disappointing among many developing countries or maybe oil-based countries. It could be actually sometimes very disappointing in some of the position that plastic pollution is an issue that only needs to address the downstream of waste management. It's obvious that this is cannot be a solution because how do you address managing a waste that you do not control how it is generated? Billions of ordinary people around the world who are exposed to this danger, who are not aware and who does not benefit in any way. So when we need to be honest, we need to understand that without addressing the upstream of plastic pollution, there's no how we can get it right addressing the downstream. But the negotiation is still on and asking our government to do right by the people and be on the right of the history. I'm hopeful that we will come to a document that will make a, a progress in addressing and ending plastic pollution. But when you have countries like, so I've read reports that said it's Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran, for example, they don't want cuts to production. Is that what you saw? And are there other countries that are sort of digging their heels in as well? Exactly. This is exactly, you know, Saudi Arabia, even some point in, they're walking away from the meeting. And this is actually very disappointing. And of course, um, Iran, like you mentioned, also including Egypt, they've been arguing on the fact that there's a lot of economic activity for Egypt in the upstream of plastic production. And this is why they are arguing that they don't want, you know, some certain discussion around polymers of concern, which is unacceptable, actually. I was also reading that I think it was a Centre for International Environmental Law had said that there are 143 lobbyists representing fossil fuel and chemicals who have registered to attend the event. Is it actually possible to come to some sort of meaningful uh, agreement when you've got players like that involved and countries whose economies are so tied to oil and plastics? Absolutely. It's, it's really disappointing, but I'm not so surprised because I think it's the same we experienced in Paris in, in INC2, in which you have a lot of lobbyists who do not even stay in the room for negotiation, but they are along the corridor. Um, I met a certain gentleman who is also, actually also from Nigeria, but he worked with a oil company in Saudi Arabia and he keep trying to convince me why this is not good for Nigeria, you know, and, and that's why many organizations around the world are calling to kick the polluters out because they need to stay out of the negotiation because there's derailing of, you know, meaningful conversation in the treaty. So what should the treaty like if you were able to write it yourself and put a number of points down? What, what would the treaty contain? There needs to be a drastic reduction in plastic production, at least say around 70 of reduction in plastic production globally. And most importantly, the single-use plastic has to go. They totally needs to be phased out. So this will will be a lot of progress. That's number one. The number two will be to list all of the chemicals of concern, list them in the harness of the document to ensure that they are also phased out. All of the plastic producers actually maintain transparency by providing up-to-date, clear accessible information on all of their products, you know, in labeling. So every customers everywhere in the world are aware of the content of the plastic that they're using. And of course, to ensure that the waste pickers who do the most important work, ensuring that they get the benefit for the work that they are doing. 
Yeah, you mentioned those waste pickers. I used to work in Egypt and for one of the stories we went into a neighborhood. I mean, there are many neighborhoods which deal with all of the rubbish. I remember I went into one woman's house and she was purely sorting out the plastic cutlery from airplanes. Uh, and they're literally living in rubbish. It's all in the house, in the street, and the smell was just really pungent and, and overbearing. But you talked about Egypt sort of pushing back. So I mean, kind of interested in where the, the big major African players were, you know, was their position largely kind of united? So largely, African countries, uh, the governments are actually united for a plastic treaty that is ambitious and that truly, you know, prioritize the health of the people and the environment. Uh, but unfortunately, you have few countries who continue to take different positions, like Egypt, I'd mentioned, including Uganda as well. Yeah. Can you just give me a, a couple of thoughts on the waste solutions that people are coming up with? We, you know, they, Obviously, recycling is something that the countries are putting a lot of weight on in terms of if we you know it's okay we're not gonna we're not gonna cut production but we'll sort out the recycling the, what are you know the recycling options aren't great at the moment there are lots of questions around whether chemicals recycling is feasible or the right thing to do and how much of a what percent of plastics that you can recycle within a product and so on do you have a, a view on that i've never seen anywhere where chemical recycling has worked or incineration for instance and no one no one till today can give us concrete where they have worked. And what we find out from community mem- people is that since the cement clean it came to their communities, people have experienced many different types of diseases that they don't have before. So the next meeting is in Canada in April, and the legally binding treaty is supposed to be in place by the end of next year. Do you think that's possible? And looking ahead, what's your game plan now? I think it's possible. Because humanity has the capacity to actually, you know, overcome greed. I'm hoping that we could actually make progress. And by the end of the 2024, we could actually have a document that's truly ambitious and, of course, uh, work for all people from all around the world. Well, Hamed, thank you very much for all your work. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Our second guest has just come from Nairobi, where she was involved in negotiations. Professor Bethany Carney-Amroth is an ecotoxicologist at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. What came out at the end? I mean, there's what, 500 proposals on the table. How does this affect you know, the process of, of signing a plastics treaty going forward? I guess the biggest outcome was a disappointment <laughs> on the very last day when the delegates were not able to reach an agreement on accepting the draft text for the treaty or on intercessional work. But if we're going to look at it from a, a glass half full perspective, nothing was deleted. So all of the ambitious options are still on the table and there are many options and there are pages and pages of text that need to be gone through. And this will be a, a time consuming process, but all of the options are still in there. There's still very much work to do and and they did not get a mandate for official intercessional work, which could have supported progress forward. But I think that means a lot of groups will be doing a lot of work unofficially. What are the options do you think that need to be in the treaty? And maybe just from seeing how things are going, what do you suspect we're going to end up with? Is this going to be sort of 
concrete measures to reduce plastic production? Will that be voluntary? Will that be enforced? Uh, are there, is it just going to be a pledge to recycle more? Uh, hopefully not. I think that would be worst case scenario. All of all the data is showing us that we really need to reduce primary plastic production, that we need to, to have ambitious goals already at the very top of, of the waste hierarchy, at the very first stages of the plastics lifespan. And these need to be obligations. Voluntary measures are not going to, to suffice. Yeah, you talk about reducing plastic production, but then you've got these big oil producers like Saudi Arabia, Russia and Iran, they were kind of named as some of these countries that kind of put obstacles in these negotiations. Yeah, this is very evident in that space that there are there are different sides of the story. There are the producers with very strong economic interests in continuing to produce plastics and not only not only plastics producers, but the entire fossil fuel industry, which is shifting some of its production into plastics as we see a shift away from the need for some fossil fuel energy sources. And there's also entire economies that are built around fossil fuels. So these are really big questions that we're facing. But on the other side of the table, you have countries and peoples that are, are that are bearing the brunt and the impact of plastics pollution. So the, the costs are benefited on one side of the table while they're being paid for on the other. And this includes small island developing states, which are completely inundated by plastics. They're not producers. They're they're not oil producers, they're not plastics producers, yet they're drowning in it. Unfortunately, yeah, you mentioned island nations, for example, or we just heard from Hamid from Nigeria, his country also being inundated with a lot of waste. But you know, these are less powerful countries. I mean, we heard a lot in the press about, yes, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, but I'm also interested about some of the industry. A lot of the plastic manufacturers are, you know, major US companies, Dow Chemical, ExxonMobil, what position did those countries take? What, what position did industry take? How powerful were they in these meetings? It's hard to get a measure on exactly how powerful they are, but they're definitely present. There was a study last week by the Center for International Environmental Law, CL, who looked at the list of registrants to the meeting and analyzed that looking for ties to fossil fuel industry. And they found somewhere near 150 lobbyists were attending the meeting from companies like the ones you mentioned. And the number of scientists that we had with our group, the Scientist Coalition for an Effective Plastics Treaty, was 37. Yeah, so you're outnumbered. And this is something that we've highlighted also in some of our publications around conflicts of interest and how how companies with or companies or countries with vested interest, financial gains in these spaces will share science that is uh, misleading. They, they use techniques like cherry picking or or academic capture where they're financing their their own quote-unquote research to find other results than what independent science is showing. And this adds confusion to the discussion, and it's a tactique that is very well known and very well used called creation of doubt. And this doubt can create a slowing of the process or an indecision like amongst policymakers. Is it like the tobacco lobby did? Exactly, exactly. And they they can even run this through PR companies that are very good at what they do. And they're, so what we're trying to do in that space is try to bring robust, independent science and evidence to the discussions, showing where there is consensus from the scientific community around questions like chemicals and polymers of concern, where we have evidence of hazardous properties, for example, or problematic products on the market. What were the biggest myths being put out there, just briefly? 
Oh, I heard a lot of a lot of things on the ground, but uh, for example, I heard that chemicals are not a problem. That that polymerization reactions are 100% effective, so there's no monomers left in the in the plastic products. There's a lot of these kinds of stories, or that we need more plastics to reach our our climate goals, which is not true based on all the modeling work that's been done. There are strong ties between plastics and climate, given the fossil fuel connections. How are these myths getting out there? Are they in papers and things, or are they just are they in conversations? How are they being dispensed? Yeah, so some of it's in papers. There's empirical evidence showing that even academic research that is funded by industry can be tarnished by biases, be those unintended or not, so that the results of the research that is industry-funded will be more pro-industry. But beyond that, there are um, PR campaigns that are running with, with misinformation, and there are lobbyists in the room. They have the ear of a lot of the delegates, and they're spreading their version of what might be going on. I mean, are scientists like yourself approached and offered money to write academic papers? Has this ever happened to you? I've never been offered money. I don't know if they would try. I've, maybe I don't come off as being easily for sale. But one thing that we are noticing is that, is that scientists in the plastics field are starting to be harassed by industry. And this is also not new. This is a, a technique that has been used going back for decades, back to the tobacco industry. The pesticides industry has done it. Others have done it before. That's definitely occurring in the climate sphere, but around plastics. So there are different industries and companies that are, are harassing our scientists that are through online social media posts, through threats, through lawsuits. And it's a way to try to silence scientists to silence their voices in these spaces, to scare them into not sharing their results and not speaking speaking out. This is something that we have identified and discussed in terms of a human right, because there is a human right to knowledge and science. And knowledge and science needs to be the basis of the discussions that we're having here. So, so industry that is harassing scientists and providing misinformation is, is a very big problem. It's a very big problem. Can you give us an example of that? I know you don't need to name names, but example of how that... What the... well, I, can, I can speak from my own personal experiences. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, please. The bioplastic industry has been unhappy with some of my research showing that bio-based plastics are not necessarily inherently safer than fossil fuel-based plastics, largely because they do contain a lot of the same chemicals as other products do. They do have a different carbon footprint given the carbon sourcing for the materials themselves, but from a toxicity perspective, they are not safer. But the industry doesn't like that because they want to sell their products as the solution, the green solution. And they've written, they've written to me and about me publicly saying that I'm harming their reputation and accusing me of almost being a bad scientist and stepping outside of my lane writing things like this. I know that some of them reach out to editors of publications to come with accusations about the validity of the research that is published. So it's a consorted effort, most definitely. And how do you combat that? Some of it I ignore because it's also a, a way to try to usurp our energy. It, they try to scare us, but they also try to take our time and our energy. I can't give them that. There's, have you heard of slap cases? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in Sweden and slap cases are not very common here. I think it's very difficult to bring cases like that. But this is another technique that, that can be used by industry to silence public participation. I mean, have you got an example of where a slap has been used? And maybe you can just explain that a little bit for listeners who maybe aren't so aware of uh, these uh, corporate suits. Yeah, so these are lawsuits that are brought against people participating in the public sphere, and that might be academic scientists like we are, 
or it might be uh, quote unquote activists, journalists, lawyers, or, or lawyers. And the goal of those cases is not to win them. The goal of the cases is to drown the defendant in lawsuits and costs in time, just just to stall things, just to silence them. So frightening stuff. Um, so you're, you're an ecotoxicologist. Could you tell us more a little bit broadly about the impacts of plastics waste? I mean, millions of tons of it gets into the ocean each year, but we do, do we know exactly what's happening to marine life as a result? Um, and how does plastic pollution relate to climate change? If you could sort of tell us a bit about that, that would be great. The impacts that we see in fish are very similar to those that we see in humans regarding things like endocrine disrupting, hormone disrupting chemicals. The particles are also being shown to induce oxidative stress and inflammatory pathways. And these are similar to what early evidence around human health impacts is starting to show, even if that research field is very young. And then on, on another foot, I'm standing in this very interdisciplinary field around research, looking at larger scale impacts. Uh, some of that work has been done through the planetary boundaries framework, which looks at how humans are, through our activities, disrupting Earth system functions. So that the, the functions of the planet that we need so that we can survive in a system that is conducive to our species. And this is connected to, as you already mentioned, climate, but ocean acidification, nutrient cycling, land and water use, and so on. In that work there, we find that the production of plastics and chemicals is far beyond what is safe based on a weight of evidence approach, looking at how much data we have or don't have around the toxicity of these chemicals and, and plastic materials and society's ability to mitigate harm. We're seeing increases in production. We're seeing increases in complexity. We're seeing increases in releases to the environment. We're seeing increased contamination of every environmental niche on the planet, from the deep oceans to mountaintops, to the atmosphere, to human bodies. Everything is contaminated. And all of this evidence is, is showing us that we are outside the safe operating space. And the connections between plastics and climate are complex. In the first step, it's because uh, due to the fact that 99, 98, 99% of plastics are currently produced from fossil fuels as a carbon source. So there's a direct connection there. But as plastics degrade or, or are incinerated in the environment, carbon dioxide is released again. So it's just sort of a transitory phase from oil to carbon dioxide that plastics is going through. There's also more indirect connections to plastics, potential effects on carbon cycling in the oceans. The ocean's carbon pump, which sequesters carbon from the atmosphere through fecal matter and, and zooplankton into the deep oceans. And there are indications that that might be impacted by plastics changing the density of these particles and the flow of carbon in the oceans. There's also evidence that plastics might impact microbial communities, changing nutrient fixation in soil communities. And this is the very, very basis of food production of life on the planet. And if we're destabilizing these functions, we're destabilizing the planet. Oh, that sounds quite hard to argue against. So when you put all, put all that out there and then the plastics industry says, well, oh, we, do we need this for the green tech revolution and um, all that kind of stuff. How is it that they're managing to, obviously they have a lot of money and power, they manage to sort of I don't know, fight against these arguments when they seem so dramatic. You're talking about planetary boundaries being crossed. I guess they would, they would maybe question the weight of evidence, but more speak to 
how plastics can be a solution. And, and plastics are a very good material. They are essential for a lot, of, a lot of the functions of society today. And none of us is calling for a complete ban on plastics because we do need it. But the way in which we're using plastic and the volumes that are being produced and used are far beyond what is necessary. So we're calling for an identification of essential uses of plastics and then shifting production into only that. While we at the same time find other ways of doing things, supporting a transition into a more sustainable and a safer future. Working from the waste hierarchy again, where the first steps are reduction and the second steps are reuse and refill systems. We have to change our food systems. We have to change the way that we're using plastics and commerce and packaging materials. All of this needs to be changed and reduced. On reuse, I think a lot of people are going to be dismayed to know that only about 10% of their plastic is recycled when so many of us try to separate our rubbish and expect it to go on to have another life. So what's going wrong? What's actually happening to the waste that isn't being recycled? Okay, the reason why we can't recycle plastics as easily as one might like to think is because they're not designed to be recycled. And that is another PR campaign that came out of industry decades ago to try to make us think that we could recycle plastics, thereby shifting blame onto consumers while they in the background could continue to increase production and use of plastics, selling it as something recyclable and sustainable. But there are a plethora of different polymers on the market. Many products will contain multiple different kinds of polymers, so different kinds of plastics that can't really be blended in recycling. And there are, current data tells us that there are 16,000 chemicals used in plastics. 4,100 of those are known hazardous chemicals. So we know that they have properties like that they're cancerogenic, mutagenic, toxic to reproduction, that they're disturbing hormone systems, they're endocrine disruptors, that they're hazardous to aquatic life. All of these data points exist for more than 4,000 chemicals, while we lack data on 10,000 chemicals or more. We don't know. We don't know what they're doing. And that information is sometimes even protected as proprietary information that companies don't have to reveal. So there's, there are inherent problems there. And when you recycle materials where you don't know what they're made out of and you don't know what is in them, you end up with this, this mess of chemicals going into recycling streams where there's no control, there's no control mechanisms. And we don't know what is in the recycled materials that are coming out. We just recently published a study on recycled pellets that were collected at small-scale mechanical recycling facilities in the global south, in South America, Africa, Asia, and one in Eastern Europe. And we're finding hundreds of chemicals that are not even used in plastics production, but that are rather contaminating the materials, probably during the use or waste phase, even if we don't know exactly how those chemicals are getting in there. But it's things like pesticides and pharmaceuticals that should not be in plastics materials, but are due to the inherent nature of plastic and our messy waste streams and recycling facilities. So recycling is a facade. Right now, yes. And if it is going to work in any way that resembles safe or sustainable, a lot of changes need to happen. And those changes need to occur from the very beginning of plastics life. So we need to know what products are being produced, what kinds of polymers and plastics are being used in them, what kinds of chemicals are being added to them. So we're calling for transparency and reporting around chemicals and products, but also traceability through the value chain, which is very complex. And this is a very big ask, given the 16,000 chemicals I just mentioned. So another step in trying to make this feasible would be to reduce complexity. If we could work with the idea of chemical simplification, we could have simpler markets with fewer molecules that we need to report and trace, and we could increase safety and recyclability of the products that are on the market. So there needs to be 
progress in design standards in, in what and how we're producing things. I mean, we're all completely surrounded by plastic. It's in everybody's lives. What do you think is going to be practically possible, you know, coming up you know, next year, end of next year, what's going to be possible going into this treaty? As we're looking right now, things are going far slower than they need to be. The INC planned for five negotiating meetings and three have already passed. And there is very little progress towards towards an actual final treaty. There are a large number of countries that are calling for an ambitious treaty, that are calling for obligations. Even companies in the business sector, manufacturers and users of plastics are calling for global decisions because it is a global market and that would be easier for them. So there are calls from from countries and from companies for an ambitious treaty that is legally binding with global obligations. But we're not there yet. Thank you so much, Bethany, on that uh, stark note. Uplifting <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we will wrap up, uh, no pun intended. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks very much to Hamed Chiamu and to Professor Bethany Carney. And thanks very much for joining us. Mm-hmm.